0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. The Supreme Court's ruling allowing the DACA program to continue is merely the latest legal setback for the Trump administration and federal agencies. In a 5-4 ruling last week, the justices said the Department of Homeland Security hadn't done enough to explain why it was rolling back immigration protections for DREAMers and stopped the Trump administration from ending DACA. President Trump interpreted the decision as a win at his rally in Oklahoma last Saturday. They basically said, you won, but you have to come back and redo it. It's almost like, gee, come on back, your paperwork was no good. But the DACA decision and last year's rejection of the administration's reason for adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census represent just the highest profile failures of the Trump administration in the area of federal regulation. Joining me is Jillian Metzger, a professor at Columbia Law School. Jillian, according to NYU Law's Institute for Policy Integrity, during the Trump administration, agencies attempting to pass new regulations or undo old ones have lost 90% of the time in courts before both Republican and Democratic appointed judges. How high is that compared to other administrations? Does it stand out? It does stand out. People give somewhat different Numbers, and I think it's often important to think
1: about the specific measure at issue. But the general number you hear bandied about is that administrations usually win around 70% of the time. So a 90% loss rate really is extraordinary. And you can tell it from just looking at the opinions. What's striking about them is often the mistakes are pretty basic. You know, we can go through what the different kinds of mistakes are, but some of the basic procedural errors, you get you know, unanimity across a panel, notwithstanding that the members of the panel may take very different views about judicial review and about regulation
0: generally. So I do think it really does stand out. So what is the Trump administration generally doing wrong in these cases? There are a few different kinds of problems. So
1: one set of problems are just basic procedural flaws, right? You get a number of decisions that, say, the administration just simply failed to do notice and comment rulemaking. The requirements for rulemaking are well-established by the Administrative Procedure Act, which was enacted in 1946. They require advance notice an opportunity for comment. And then issuing the rule with some explanation of the reason for the rule, the choices, responding to the comments, and so forth. And those are well-established requirements. And you find the administration often just foregoing them, trying to suspend rules, particularly early on, and often heavily using some exceptions to the APA that courts have held aren't applicable, or in other ways, trying to avoid that process. So that's one set of problems there is also a set of problems involving claims of statutory authority. Now, one of the striking things about the Trump administration is that sometimes it's claiming it doesn't have authority. Usually government agencies will make claims of authority that are broader and the court might reject them. But a striking feature of the Trump administration agencies is that they are often saying they don't have the authority to regulate. And They are losing on a set of claims about their authority. Sometimes these claims that they lack authority really are at odds with both established precedent, but also longstanding agency views of the statute. And courts are are sometimes rejecting those. And then there's also a set of decisions, and most recently the DACA decision that came out from the Supreme Court is one of these, where the administration is losing on its reasoning and its failure to reason. And you're seeing a lot of very conclusory statements, lack of explanation, lack of consideration of obviously relevant factors. In the rules that are issued, there will be counterindications in the record that are never explained, things like that, and they're losing on those as well.
0: Are most courts looking at the decision or regulation itself or the way the decision or regulation was arrived at, or both?
1: Well, it depends a little bit on the on the challenge. Most challenges will bring some of these together, right? You'll get litigation, and they'll raise a APA notice and comment procedural challenge, and then they'll also claim that the rule was arbitrary and capricious, right? Those often go together. Frequently, agencies, and this is the reasoning part, when courts assess a challenge to an agency's reasoning, they can often examine that and find that the agency was acting unreasonably without having to go that deeply into the record. There's an obvious alternative in the record and the agency never considered it. So the leading case on when an agency decision is arbitrary and capricious is this famous State Farm decision going back to the 1980s involving the passive seatbelt airbag regulation. And there the Reagan administration had Overturned an existing requirement that was either a passive seatbelt or an airbag on the grounds that they concluded people wouldn't use the passive seatbelt. Well, fine, but what you need to explain is why wouldn't an airbag then be a good alternative? And instead, they just rescinded the passive restraint rule altogether. That's a pretty obvious problem. You don't need to go that far into the record to get that. In some other instances, you do have courts looking maybe a little bit more closely at the record. And in particular, one of the things that has come up in some cases most famously, I think the census decision from last term, is that there's evidence in the record that the agency is not acting in good faith, that the reasons that it's giving for why it made the decision it did are pretextual. And in those instances, you did have the court saying there is enough of a prima facie case of pretext here that we are going to go beyond the record and consider that evidence. There's a little bit of that concern in the DACA decision from last week, where what the Trump administration wanted to do was to claim that it was legally required to overturn DACA because then it wouldn't take as much of a political hit for what it was doing. And what the court basically said was, even leaving aside whether or not the original DACA was unlawful or not, there are still discretionary decisions and policy decisions here. And you haven't given us any explanation of why you made the choices you did on those questions. And that's a way of sort of not allowing an an agency to shirk its responsibility to make the hard choices and be accountable for them.
0: The DACA decision came as a surprise to many people. If the court established that in the census case, why was it such a surprise in the DACA case?
1: Well, I'm one of the people who was surprised, so <laughs> um, for, for a couple of reasons. So uh, if you go back to that census case, and in some sense, you could actually see three cases in progression. Begin with Trump versus Hawaii, then have Department of Commerce, the census case, and then have the DACA decision. And in all three of these, there was very strong evidence behind it of, some kind of pretextual reasoning. There was actually a lot of statements from candidate Trump expressing anti-Muslim bias in the Trump versus Hawaii. The Supreme Court nonetheless defers to the national security judgment and lets it go in Trump versus Hawaii. Then you have Department of Commerce, where there is very strong evidence that this is actually, adding the citizenship question to the census, is actually part of an effort to restrict voting and to serve Republican electoral interests. And the reason that's given is that it's to enforce the Voting Rights Act, which is just absurd. And you have the court pushing back at that. But the way the court pushed back at it in the Department of Commerce decision was interesting. This was an opinion written by the chief justice. And he split apart the question of pretext from the question of whether the agency's reasoning was arbitrary. And he made a point of saying, it's not arbitrary to choose to add a citizenship question. But here you did so for pretextual reasons. And he separated out those two. So he, he rejected the arbitrary and capriciousness challenge and then said, but, but it still overturned the decision on the grounds uh, that the agency had acted pretext toward. Then you get to this case, DACA, and it's written by, the majority opinion is written by Roberts, and he does a much more rigorous scrutiny on arbitrary and capricious grounds, I think it's fair to say, and doesn't ever rule on pretext, but has instead seemingly sort of folded in the concerns that the agency isn't being honest into the, the arbitrary and capricious scrutiny you know, in the form of examining more closely the reasons that the agency gave and its decision and, and whether it considered all the relevant factors or not. So I think one thing that people were surprised by, or one reason it was unexpected, is that just a year ago... In Department of Commerce, the arbitrary and capriciousness scrutiny of agency reasoning was presented as a pretty mild inquiry. And this is, in Department of Commerce, a more aggressive form of that scrutiny. So that's one difference. The other reason why it's different is that in Department of Commerce, There were lots of reasons to think that adding a citizenship question was simply arbitrary because there was so much evidence from the Bureau of the Census and others that the effect of doing so would be to decline response rates and harm the accuracy of the census, which is the instruction to the agency is to make an accurate census, right? Here, everybody agrees that the agency has the policy authority to decide to end DACA. Even the parties challenging agreed that. So it was really just a question of whether it had done so with sufficient explanation. And if you look at you know the two dissents, Thomas said that because DACA was unlawful, therefore by definition there was nothing more the agency had to do. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh made the point that in the course of the litigation, the agency had produced a further explanation. And while that further explanation, in my view, was quite thin, usually courts, you know, they get a further explanation, they, the agency identifies some policy grounds, often that's enough. And what I think made it not enough in the DACA case was just the huge reliance and individual costs that were entailed by the decision. But again, it took a kind of more more searching scrutiny of what the agency had done to reach that result. So I think why people were so surprised was you've got a conservative court that has signaled as recently as last year, it's not going to be scrutinizing the administration's decision set closely, had even rejected the claims of pretext in the travel ban cases, and yet here turned around and and did a slightly more rigorous inquiry and held the administration's feet to the fire, even while acknowledging that the administration could choose this policy if it wanted to. It just had to own up. That's what it wanted to do.
0: So uh, the chief justice said that the Kirsten Nielsen memo, the DHS secretary at the time, was an impermissible post hoc rationalization. If her decision had been done at the right time, would that decision have been enough? I expect it might have been. It's a close question. Um, So there is a doctrine that says
1: basically uh, courts will review agencies on the reasons that they give for the decision at the time of their decision. And, and it's an important doctrine for a couple of reasons. One is, otherwise what's going to happen is you're going to have a bunch of lawyers after the fact dressing up agency decisions. And the reason Congress gives decisions is to agencies is so that they use their expertise and consider the policy factors, not so that executive branch lawyers afterwards uh, can find a way to justify the decision. So it's an important feature of administrative law, and the court you know, reinforced it very strongly in the DACA decision. What I find more puzzling is usually if, if, a, if an agency doesn't adequately explain its decision, the, what, it, what a court will do is it will remand. Sometimes it will remand without vacating the decision for further explanation. And if an agency, if a court does that, um, you're basically in the situation of the Nielsen memo. And then the Nielsen memo gives the further explanation and the court should review that and decide whether or not it's adequate. So if the court considered that that explanation could have been adequate had it just been issued at at the outset, it seems harder to reverse the agency now because in the end of the day, they did issue that explanation, and um, should have done it initially. Yes, but it was there. So I find it harder if the court thinks that that what Nielsen did alone would be adequate to justify its decision to um, you know, to rule as it did and hold that the agency's action was um, unreasonable. And that would have, would mean that even if the agency had issued the Nielsen memo at the get-go, that it needed to consider more the reliance interests involved than Nielsen did in the memo. But I think it's a, I think it's a close question, and there's some aspects of the majority decision that suggest it would have considered the Nielsen decision, uh, memo if it had been issued at the outset, and that was the decision to be adequate.
0: President Trump tweeted, the administration will be submitting enhanced papers shortly, in order to properly fulfill the Supreme Court's ruling and request. Now, if it's submitted shortly, will that again be a problem because not enough is being done, or is it possible to get the explanations in order, in short order? Yeah, you know, I think that's,
1: um, if I were the executive bench lawyer involved, I would make sure to dot my I's and cross my T's and take a little bit more time. I think the Supreme Court is making it pretty clear it wants these concerns about the remedy and the form to be thoroughly considered. I think it's an interesting question about whether or not the court is signaling that it thinks this should be done through more formal procedures than happened before, whether or not these are issues where there should be opportunity for comment and notice of what the agency is considering so that the agency has a more informed base to respond to. Um, So I, I think if you just try and rush a slightly fuller policy explanation and you don't really give some serious consideration to the factors that the Supreme Court identified, that's asking for further reversal.
0: The Justice Department and all these different administrative agencies do have career attorneys, you know, staff attorneys there. Don't they know what should be done, you know, what the rules of the road are? I think they do. I mean, so part of if you if you one
1: takes a step back and you try and understand why has the Trump administration done so poorly in court. I think a contributing factor is the administration's lack of respect and and fundamentally distrust of the career bureaucracy. I'm sure that they are getting advice from those career lawyers saying this isn't going to fly, you need to build build up the record, you need to deal with this evidence. And I don't think those voices are getting heard or respected. And so this is what results from that. I think you see in particular, the Department of Justice has been making several moves that honestly are, are pretty extraordinary. And um, you see a number of career lawyers at the Department of Justice taking themselves off of briefs and cases that, that they have been working on, signaling that they do not approve of the moves that the administration is making. I think that that general distrust of the bureaucracy, claims that it's a deep state out uh, to get the Trump administration, has really uh, undercut the administration's ability to
0: succeed in court. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Jillian. That's Jillian Metzger, a professor at Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.